Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. You can go ahead and have a seat. My name is Dwayne. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the district, so we want to welcome you this morning. Um, we are going to cover quite a bit this morning, and so there's a bit of a challenge for me here. We're going to be looking at eight chapters uh, in the book of Acts, and so that will either make some of you very nervous, um, or for some of you, we're like, oh, are we ending Acts today? Um, and so either way, uh, we are going to finish the text today, uh, but then we will finish the series uh, next week. And so uh, we've been in the book of Acts since February 2018, and I personally have enjoyed walking through this because we've literally seen the planting of the church, um, the first church of Jesus Christ, and all that uh, has spread of the gospel from Jesus telling his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um, and for them, kind of their thinking in their mindset, Rome, like Rome is our ends of the earth, but they didn't realize that the spirit looks farther and beyond what we even see. And so the ends of the earth is us today. I mean, the ends of the earth is, is anybody and everybody being able to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ and for, to, for the opportunity to turn to him and to love him and to pursue him. And so we're seeing this literally spread. It took us almost two years to get through it. Um, but for the entire book of Acts is actually a cover of about 30 to 35 years of just gospel ministry, um, seeing the gospel spread, seeing it push itself out. And so one of the things I want you to do right now is I want you to turn to Acts chapter 26. Um, and so I know we finished in 20 last week. So you're like, what happened in 21 through 25? I'm going to cover it. I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, it's going to be very much... Uh, like a history lesson. And so if you hated history class, then I'm sorry, come next week and maybe the sermon will be different for you. Um, but it is going to be sort of a history lesson for us today. Um, but there's going to be some specific things that I'm going to point out as we look at this. Um, I know that we usually kind of hit two to three verses or a chunk of passage at a time. Um, what we're really looking at over these seven to eight chapters is just the trial of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. And so we're seeing him go through um, from the preaching of the gospel. We saw him in Ephesus, plant the church there, spend three years there. Last week saw him um, encourage the elders at Ephesus. And then really kind of this last play for him is, I need to get to Jerusalem. Um, I want to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem, and every single one of his friends are telling him, if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to end badly for you. And he's like, I have to listen to the Spirit. I need to go to Jerusalem. And so he's getting to Jerusalem, and as we'll look here in a second, um, he's put on trial. He's, he's arrested, which is pretty much his MO everywhere he goes. As he goes into the synagogue, he preaches in the temple. People get upset about it, and then they want to either beat him, drive him out of the city, imprison him, arrest him. Um, try to kill him. They've been unsuccessful to this point. But regardless, that's been his MO in every city that he's going to. Now he's going back to the epicenter, back to where it all began. Um, and when he gets there, ultimately he's going to be found um, again with a lot of opposition, a lot of hostility. hostility. 
and ultimately uh, arrested. And then not only arrested, but as he's going through these trials, he's going to be shipped off to Rome, which is really what he's been talking about throughout all of Acts is, I need to get to Rome, ends of the earth. I got to fulfill my ministry. I want to get the gospel there. Uh, we know Jerusalem to Rome is 2,997 miles. Think the, literally the span of the United States. Um, and so for a lot of them, this is a seven, eight hour airplane ride that the gospel actually goes to without airplanes. And so this is, uh, again, 30, 35 years of just expansion where we started, if you remember at the very beginning when we were looking at Acts 1 and 2, we started with 120 men and women looking face to face with Jesus talking with him, being discipled by him, um, being expounded in the gospel by him. And then ultimately, as he left and ascended back to heaven, he gives them the Great Commission. He gives them the Acts 1-8 strategy of going into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the other. He gives them the power that they need. And what we've seen over these last 30 years, for us, 18 months, what we've seen is hundreds, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people coming to know Jesus Christ as it continued to span, literally to the point that at one point it says, all of Asia has heard. Now, it doesn't mean that necessarily all of Asia believed, but it does mean that all of Asia had a chance to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So they were spreading Jesus rapidly. And that's what Luke has been telling us, instructing us. We know some of them were quite violent against, but everybody knew what it was. And they didn't find out via Twitter or Facebook or news loops. They found out by just word of mouth. They found out by believers who were so changed and transformed by this good news that they had to get that good news to their enemies, to their friends, to their families, to their neighbors. They had to get it out. They were literally seizing every opportunity. And what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul in the early church is in any and every opportunity that presented itself, he seized it in order to spread Christ. He seized it. And really, that's what I want to look at as we kind of highlight is what I'm calling the, the Jerusalem trials. As we highlight this, I just want to look at the opportunities that Paul took Regardless of his circumstances, the opportunities he took to seize in the moment sharing Jesus Christ. Because that's really kind of how this, this book just, just ends. It's literally been chapter after chapter after chapter of opportunities to tell people about Jesus Christ. And it's no different for us. It's no difference for us. For, for the ends of the earth to have happened means Somebody has seized the opportunity in order to tell you about Jesus Christ. Somebody. Whether it was a preacher in a sermon, whether it was a co-worker, whether it was one of your family members, whether it was, and this is probably one of the most beautiful stories that you can ever hear, is the fact that a parent told you about Jesus Christ when you were five, six, seven years old and you came to know him. And you don't remember a time that you did not love and treasure Jesus. Or, last week you were strung out on heroin and someone came and shared the gospel with you and you've had a radical coming to Jesus moment where he's completely changed and transformed your life to where you love him and you don't love addiction. You love him and you don't love what you're placing your hope in. You love Jesus more than anything that's out there. 
Every single one of us, if you call yourself a believer, have this story where somebody seized an opportunity to tell us about him. And that's what, again, I want us to see today. From last week's sermon where Paul encouraged the Ephesian elders, we know the Apostle Paul is now heading towards Jerusalem. He feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to get there. Once he gets there, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches. And when he preaches, again, he's met with hostility. He's met with these Hebrew Jews who want to basically muzzle the ox here. They want to shut him up. They want him to stop proclaiming Jesus Christ. They don't want him to disrupt the good thing that they think they have going. Their view of religion is kind of what they're placing their hope in. It's what, they're, it's what all of their comfort is in. It's what everything that kind of drives their lifestyle is built around this religion that they have formed and fabricated based off of what the Old Testament actually proclaimed and taught. Like they're, they're, What they're ultimately doing is actually breaking the law in which they follow in order to uphold the law that they've created. This is what they're constantly doing over and over and over again. And so as Paul is there and he's preaching, they, these Jews from Asia whip up a mob into a frenzy and they seize Paul. And the accusation is that he has defiled the temple and preached against the law of Moses. Again, so, so, so now what they're going to say is, let's get Paul, let's seize him, let's drag him out, let's murder him in order to protect the law of Moses, which also said, do not murder like, it's silly what we do with religion oftentimes and how religion instructs us to do things that are actually contrary to what it intends. When they get there, what they find is this mob has set up um, kind of a borderline illegal tribunal to try the Apostle Paul. But while they're trying him, they're also beating the mess out of him. So the soldiers intervene. They grab Paul. They're dragging him out. Paul, before he gets to the barracks, for his own safety, ask, can I address the crowd? Can I address these people who are trying to kill me? And so they let him. And so he turns around and he starts to speak in Hebrew. And because they're Hebrews, they hush up and they listen to him. And he literally is just telling his story. Those right now that are in our community groups, as we're walking through the gospel primer, you're, you've been telling your story over the last couple of weeks. This is Paul getting up to the people who are his people, and he's sharing his story. He's saying, you know me. You know that I was trained up by Gamaliel. You know that I was a Pharisee. You know that I've come from a house of Pharisees. You know that I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, that I was circumcised the eighth day. Like he is walking through their law and what they hold to. And he's saying, I was of you and am of you. I am literally like you. I used to believe what you believed. And he even goes on to say, like, I literally persecuted the church that you are now persecuting. I was in the exact same frame of mind that you are in right now. But then I was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus revealed himself to me in such a way that I could not. I could not turn away from him. I could not reject him. I accepted him. I received him. And not only did I receive him, but I received the call to be able to go and share Jesus Christ with not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so as he's walking through this and as he's proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ, as he's sharing his story, he gets to this point where he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, 
they are enraged at him. And so they declare for this, as we kind of call the mayor of Jerusalem, they declare for Lysias, you need to, to flog him. You need to bind him. He's literally causing, he's going to cause a riot in this city. And so Lysias takes Paul and he arrests him. He's about to flog him. And then Paul kind of throws down his ace of spades in this moment. He says, would you flog a Roman citizen? And at this point, they didn't know that he was a Roman citizen. Would you flog a Roman citizen? Because they had very strict laws against flogging a Roman citizen who has not been legally tried for whatever the accusation is. And so at this point, they all kind of have this fear come over them that kind of freaks them out a little bit. And so Lysias comes to Paul and he's like, are you a Roman citizen? He says, I am a Roman citizen. Did you buy this citizenship? He says, no, I didn't. I was born a Roman. Then the Bible tells us that, again, fear befell every single one of them. And then he has 40 men, or there was 40 men in Jerusalem, Hebrews, who plotted against Paul in order to drag him out and kill him. But the way that they did it was going to Lysias and say, hey, we just want to hear some more of what Paul has to say. So would you be willing to let him come out um, to this kind of area outside of the city? Would you let him come out so that he can just continue to teach us about this way that he's referring to. And so ultimately what happens is um, some men come back to Lysias and tell him, hey, there is actually a plot to kill Paul, and we really don't want to get in trouble with Rome, and so uh, you need to figure out a way to protect him. And so he puts 200 men and 40 horsemen around Paul in order to then move him to the barracks. I mean, like, they're treating Paul like he's Jason Bourne in this setting. Like, like, he's literally able to get away and do whatever. But they have to figure out a way to protect him from these people who are plotting to murder him. The Bible says that while Paul is sharing the gospel, or, or then, Lysias sends him to the governor's house, Felix. Um, so now we're moving into Felix, into the next couple of chapters. As he gets to the governor's house, this governor basically wants to hear what are these accusations that are against you. And Felix ultimately doesn't really know what to do with Paul. He's kind of confused. He doesn't really understand what's going on and why people are in, in so much hatred towards him. And so Felix just puts Paul in house arrest for two years puts him in house arrest for two years in order for him to just kind of um, wait it out to see if these kind of um, floggings or these attempted um, killings of him would kind of cease. Of course, they don't. Felix is then later um, succeeded by Festus. We have these great names here, Felix to Festus. Now, Festus is the new governor, and he's not quite sure what to make of Paul either, but he wants to please the Jews. So he leaves him locked up for another couple of years, and then finally gives Paul the option of whether or not to be tried. And he says, how about we just do a trial here in Jerusalem? And Paul's like, no, we're not going to do a trial in Jerusalem. I've done nothing wrong against the Jews, but I know that if we do a trial in Jerusalem, it's going to be an unfair trial because of their hatred towards me. And so you need to get me to Rome. So he literally just kind of, again, throws down his, his main card there that I'm a Roman citizen and I need to be tried in Rome. So get me to Rome. So this new Festus, this new governor, doesn't really know what to make of Paul again. He doesn't know what to tell Caesar in writing to him why he's going to send the Apostle Paul there. So King Agrippa comes in. Um, again, another great name here. King Agrippa comes in. Well, first, I'm sorry, let me back up here. I'm giving you a big history lesson here, like I said. 
uh, verse 24 of Acts 26. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So you have Festus and you have this King Agrippa who come in. And as they come in, they're friends. They're trying to figure out Paul. Festus brings Agrippa in because he knows that, again, the word of God has spread so that Agrippa has seen at least the workings that has been going on in the gospel. So he brings him in, and then King Agrippa responds in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love Agrippa's response. He's literally saying, like, are you trying to convince me to become a Christian in just this one conversation that we're having? And Paul's like, yeah. Like, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convince you. Not only you, I'm trying to convince everybody. I want them to become Christians. I want them to believe in this Jesus Christ, except for the fact that I don't want you to be in the same chains that I'm in. I want you to be free. I want you to, to literally receive this good news. Notice in Paul's defense of himself, he's not really dealing with the Jews at all, but rather he's just preaching the gospel. And the stakes are high for him. Here's the reality. The opportunity to share the gospel with people is always around us. It's always around us. And you're going to see this as I keep walking through this. All around you and me are opportunities to make much of Jesus. We just sometimes miss it. We sometimes miss it, right? Like I remember just very clearly, I remember this, this opportunity that I had. I was at a Hardee's. Um, and it went, the Hardee's didn't go bad for me. The opportunity went bad for me. I enjoy Hardee's. Um, but anyways, I was at Hardee's, and I remember as I was sitting down eating, I was on a, a lunch break, and so I was there by myself. Um, and uh, there was a guy who was kind of bussing the tables around me. And um, because I was on lunch, and for some of you know, like, I'm a bit of an extrovert. I like talking to people. I like being around people. And so I was there probably 45 minutes on my own, so I needed to talk to somebody. Um, and so I just asked the guy, hey, how's your, how's your day going? And he literally responded to me, um, all I have is my soul and nobody wants it. And my response was, I hear you, brother. Like, that was my response in the moment. I hear you, bro. And I just remember thinking, like, and it, and it really didn't even, like, dawn on me in that moment. Like, it wasn't until I left and was driving I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm a church planner. Like, it's my job to tell people about Jesus. And I remember as I was leaving, I was like, what in the world was I thinking? I mean, like, that's like striking out in slow-pitch softball. Like, it just shouldn't happen. Like, if you have struck out, I was looking at Ransford. I was like, if you have, it shouldn't have happened. But anyways, <laughs> like, this, like, he might as well just said, like, hey, could you tell me about Jesus? And like literally my response was, I hear you. But like I really think that like this happens to us often. When we're in moments, we're in opportunities where people around us are literally opening up their lives. They're opening up their struggles. They're opening up their frustrations. 
And we just don't take the opportunity. We just miss it. What I think was happening in that moment was I believe God was inviting me to play. I think he was inviting me to play. I think he knows this man, and I pray. I'm hoping that, that God has invited someone else to play in this man's life in order to share the gospel with him and get him to Jesus so that he can have some, like he can know somebody who wants his soul. But what God's doing for every single one of us every single day is as we saw a few weeks ago when Paul was in Corinth and he got really frustrated and he wanted to leave Corinth because nobody was responding to him. And God said, no, 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 no. You're going to stay here another 18 months. You're going to continue to preach the gospel because I have many people in this city that I want to know me. What God's telling us every single day is, I'm inviting you to play. There are people within the city that I want to know me, that I have. They are my people. And the way in which, again, I know like theologically God illuminates people and they come to know him. But the way in which he does that is through men and women sharing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's awakening their hearts to be able to see Jesus and come to know him. He invites us into the salvation work that he is doing in order for us to play some kind of part in there where we get to see God transform lives. Like That's amazing. It's like going to work with dad. He's working every day saving souls and he's inviting us to play a part in that where we go and we share the gospel and they come to know Jesus Christ. I just dropped the ball on it. And here's another thing with this. Agrippa, as he kind of responds, like, do you think that this, like, I would come to know Christ in such a short time? Like, Agrippa didn't immediately just start kind of coming at Paul and telling him how, how much of an idiot he was. or No, like, he's literally just asking a question. And not only in him asking a question, I think this kind of brings an opportunity for us where we just shut people, like, we say no for people. Because we think, well, they, they're not going to be interested. Or they're not going to be open to having a conversation about this. I mean, they're, you see their lifestyle. Why would they want to come to know Jesus? They're sinners. Sinners sin. Our lifestyles? Right? I mean, we start playing these games just kind of wondering, like, would they be willing to have a conversation? I'll be honest with you, people are way more willing to have conversations about spiritual things than you think they are or would be. We're just not willing to, to play. We're not willing to enter into this. After the meeting with Agrippa and Festus, he's put on a ship and he tells the soldiers on the ship, the Holy Spirit has told me if we launch this ship, we're going to get caught up in some nastiness and there might be a loss of life. I'm paraphrasing here, okay? Don't like quote me on this. The captain said, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. We should be fine. The soldiers, rather than listening to their prisoner, again, listen to the captain, which is probably wisdom on their part. And they go out and they're actually tossed for 14 days in a storm. Where it literally says they don't see sunshine or stars for 14 days. That's a lot of cloud cover if you're not following me there. 
The boat's being tossed about. Everyone's mortified. So busy are they trying to keep the boat from sinking that it says that they no longer are eating or sleeping. They're literally just trying to keep the boat afloat. In the middle of, in the middle of all this storm, the Apostle Paul stands up. This is chapter 27, verse 21 now. He stands up and he says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> like, if I was there, I would like, not now, okay? Not now. You were right. I, yeah, you don't need to say I told you so. But then he goes on and says, Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only for the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. I love it. Paul literally, again, a prisoner, and when everything around him, his entire world literally just falling apart, nothing but chaos, he stands up in the middle and he sees an opportunity. Hey guys, uh, I know I have the opportunity to say I told you so, but instead of doing that, what I'm going to tell you is um, you can have some hope right now. Because the God that I believe in, the God that I serve, has communicated to me that we're all going to be safe. Not for the ship, so this is, I don't know how that's going to work out yet. We're going to, the ship's going to die, but we're going to be okay. We're going to get there safely. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Here's what I want to talk to you about briefly in light of this moment and this opportunity being seized. I feel like many of us are hesitant to ever share the gospel with other people because we don't feel like we're quite the example we should be yet. Like, think about this. The, Paul's a prisoner on a ship. Like, all of these soldiers don't necessarily know exactly what his accusations are. They don't know exactly what he's necessarily being tried for. They might not know a lot about him in general. They just know he's the prisoner. We need to get him to Caesar. And Paul's taking this opportunity. He's not waiting for his charges to be cleared in order for him to have his name, you know, not be run through the mud, but actually be cleared in order for him to kind of have his reputation be built back up again in order for him to then share the gospel with these people. No, he's saying, I'm the prisoner here, but I got something to say. And I think you need to hear this. Take heart. God's going to provide safety for us. I want you to know the Jesus that I know. I think for us, we have this fear that if we start sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, they're going to look at our life and say, you're a hypocrite. And to burst your bubble, you are. I'm like, we're all hypocrites in this room, right? None of us in this room are nailing it every single day on what it looks like to perfectly follow Jesus Christ. No one is. The billboard by which Christianity is preached and proclaimed and magnified is not on your strengths, but it's on your weaknesses. 
It's on your weaknesses being displayed. It's literally you coming to another person and saying, just like Paul has with his Hebrew friends, I used to do just as bad things as you did when it comes to persecuting the church. To more than that, I did worse than you. But yet I've come to know Jesus. I was on the wrong path. Jesus got me on the right path. You're on the wrong path. We need to come together and work this out. And what that looks like for us is us walking to an unbeliever. Maybe it's an unbeliever who they're struggling with their marriage. And you, being a married person, if you're married in this room, walking alongside them and saying, you know what? Um, uh, I'm not perfect in my marriage. My marriage at times has, has run amok. There's been times where I've done things that are really bad, that I've done things that are really wrong, that I've, I've really struggled. We're not always happy. We're not always go lucky. But you know what? There's sufficiency in Christ that is holding my marriage together. There's sufficiency in Christ that is drawing me out of my sin within the marriage that is leading me to be a godly husband and a godly wife within our marriage. It's helping us get better in our marriage. There's sufficiency in Christ doing that. I want to invite you into this process. I want to invite you to know Jesus so that he can help your marriage as well. It's literally us just being honest with one another and honest with unbelievers and just being open with them about the the mess that's in our lives and the fact that we are pursuing the sufficiency in Christ alone, not in our own efforts, in our own works, not in how, how good we can present ourselves. Just think about the ground your doubt gives you that's in common with those who don't believe. Like one of the biggest reasons as they've done like all kinds of researches on this. One of the biggest reasons why someone is not willing to trust Jesus, follow Jesus, talk about Jesus is because of the doubt and the fear of what would happen if they did. And so what we do is we just come into that and we say, hey, guess what? Um, I have a lot more questions now about God than I did before I got saved. Like people look at me because I'm a pastor and they think that I know the Bible. I'm working through it. I'm getting, it's, it's kind of always like the funny thing where they always, you look for the perfect leader to come and lead people. And I'm like, they found the worst leader in order to come and like lead people. Like I'm like learning and going as like, this is job, like I'm on the job training with the Lord here. And I'm just inviting you in to this opportunity for us to be honest about who we are and where we are. And knowing that Jesus Christ has met us in that place. And that yes, he is growing us. And yes, he is sanctifying us. And yes, he is is working in us to make us more like himself every single day. As every single day we continue to still struggle and wrestle with our flesh. And wrestle with sin and wrestle with our desires and wrestle with our questions. And wrestle with our understandings and wrestle with whatever it looks like. We wrestle. If you, don't, if you don't know that there's wrestling going on out there amongst the Christian world, just go on Twitter and start looking at theologians, looking at different denominations, looking at different pastors, and just watch their threads and see how many people are willing to get on there and just debate and debate and debate and debate and debate. And all that reveals is the fact that none of them are Jesus. None of them know it perfectly. None of them have it all figured out completely. Therefore, we must 
trust in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. He's working. He's working. And we want to invite our unbelieving friends, neighbors, enemies, coworkers, family members. We want to invite them into this process of us being able to say to them, I was messed up and I met Jesus. I'm still messed up, but Jesus is making me better. I'm still struggling, but here's where I have my hope in Christ, in Christ alone. Here's what he's doing. From there... Paul finally gets to Rome, and as is his M.O., once he gets to Rome, he waits a few days, and then he contacts the rulers of the Jewish synagogue. Jews first, then Gentiles. It's his M.O. in every single city. All of his journeys, he stops in the synagogue, proclaims, and when things go badly in the synagogue, like always they do, he then goes and shares somewhere else. Verse Chapter 28, verse 20, here's what he says as he's calling the Jewish leaders. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. I want to stop there because it seems like in this moment, the opportunity that's being seized is an opportunity where the deck is pretty much stacked against the Apostle Paul in this, in this scenario. What we know at this point in time is that throughout the ancient world, the Jews have not jumped on board quickly for the message of Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they've been very hostile towards it. They've been very aggressive and they've been very violent towards it. Yet despite the fact that this is his experience these people were not going to be open, despite his experience that this was going to end probably with him being beaten again or ostracized or maybe even having more false trumped up charges levied against him. Despite all of that, he seizes the opportunity. So let's do this in regard to honesty in here. How many of you know people and you're like, I just know they want to be interested. I, I can see how they live their lives. I, I know what they value. I just know they want to be interested I mean, there's neighbors around us that we just assume don't want to hear Jesus. I mean, Paul getting to Rome, going into the Jewish synagogue, pretty much knows how it's going to play out for him. He's already been warned by his brothers. He's already been warned by the Holy Spirit. You get to Rome, you're going to die. And he goes into this Jewish synagogue. I mean, do you, think about it. Who do you think is going to be the ones to kill him? Like he knows he's going to die by the sword of his own people. And those are the first ones that he goes to. Like what this should be producing in us as we see this narrative story of the Apostle Paul. Is that at every opportunity, whether he's on a ship with centurions, with just guards, 
and he's sharing the gospel with them, or he's standing in front of kings and senators and mayors and governors, literally the elitist of the elite or the lowest of the low, he's seizing every opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's taking this opportunity, and he wants to do it because of what Josh shared last week in Acts chapter 20. Verse 24, it says, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like, that's what the Apostle Paul is after. That's what he's staying focused on every single day. As he's getting up in the morning, regardless of how many chains he's in, regardless of who he's talking to, he's seizing this opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. If that's the only thing you hear today when you walk out of this room, seize the opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ. That might start off with you just looking around you this week. One thing that we kind of practice, and I would love to kind of bring this back in, especially amongst your accountability groups or maybe your community group, is we used to just ask this question at the beginning of our community groups in Miami. We used to tell people, what opportunities did you have this week for gospel conversations, whether you acted on them or didn't? For me, that would have been like a, a, a light bulb of the hearty scenario. Drop the ball on that one. Let's pray for you. Let's encourage you. Next time... Let's step up to bat and let's take a swing. Let's just try this thing. What's the worst that's going to happen? We're not in Rome here. We're not in Jerusalem. No one's going to like just imprison us and throw us in. Like what, is somebody just going to disagree with you? Guess what? People disagree with you every single day. What are we fearful of? Someone now spending eternity in heaven with Jesus for the rest of their life? Is that what we're fearful of? Because if that's the case, then we don't understand the good news. We don't think the good news is actually good news for people. And if for some reason we've misconstrued the gospel to where it's not good news for people, and that's not good news for us, then we don't know Jesus. We don't know Jesus. We don't know that he's working out all things for the good of those who are called according to him. He's good He's good news. He's good news. And, and here's the thing, too, is like we're, we're not trying to kind of come in and like tell people you're going to hell and that's why we need to give you the gospel. What we're trying to tell people is that um, everybody is going to hell. That's our trajectory. And that's where you're going And the only way to get there is by literally jumping over a way out. We're telling you the way out. We're telling you the good news. We're not trying to do like a drive-by guilting of people. We're trying to tell them of a Jesus who removes their guilt. We're not trying to like shame people. Or make them feel ashamed of their lifestyle. We're coming alongside of them. And telling them of a Jesus. Who removes their shame. And who gives them value and worth. And reminds them of who God has created them to be in his image. 
We're not what, we're, what we kind of consider Bible thumpers just telling people we're better than you. That's not what we're doing. But we're coming alongside pleading with people that I know what you're going through. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're walking through. I know what you're struggling with because I am a sinner. But because of Jesus, I now am a saint. It wasn't anything that I did, but it's all Jesus. It's all about him. It's what he's done. He's good news for me. He's invaded literally all of the dark spaces and places of my heart and my mind and my soul. And he's come in and he's illuminated his light. And he's given me his righteousness. And it was free. It was free. And now because of him, because of what he's given me, I get to spend eternity with God. with him. I get to enjoy all that is Christ. I get to enjoy as a co-heir of his. This is the message that we're sharing. And as Paul proclaims this message, he actually literally sees some people were convinced and believed. They were convinced and believed. Acts 28, verse 30, he lived there two whole years in Rome at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. History tells us that somewhere between AD 62 and 67, the trial actually happens. Apostle Paul is dragged out to the outskirts of Rome and he's beheaded. But he seized every opportunity. To proclaim Jesus. And here's the reality. What was at stake for him if he were able to not proclaim Jesus and live or proclaim Jesus and die? What was at stake is joy. It's joy. This is what's at stake here is joy. If he would have chosen not to follow Christ's commands to go and preach and proclaim the gospel to share it with everyone around him. And then live a comfortable life. Maybe he could be a writer since he studied under Gamaliel. Maybe he could have some you know, little disciples around him or whatever it looked like. Like write a couple of books. Comfortable life. Get a boat. Although he didn't have a good record with boats. But, <laughs> but like the Apostle Paul, if he would have done that, he would probably live the most miserable life that he would have ever dreamt of. And the reason why I know that is because if you read Philippians, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's gain. Why? Because for him, what it meant to live and to experience the greatest life possible was having his joy be complete by others coming to know Jesus. So much so that he says something that's out of his own theology. He literally says, if I could be cut off from Christ in order for my own countrymen, the Jews, to be brought to Christ, I would do it. Even though he knows he can't be cut off from Christ. But 
that's the joy within him and the pursuit within him for others to come to know Jesus is that he would be willing to lose Jesus. That's how valuable he sees his relationship with Jesus. And this is what he's proclaiming to everybody without hindrance. I want you to know the sufficiency of Jesus. I want you to treasure him, love him, adore him. Let him remove your shame and your guilt and your sins. Let him get rid of those things so that you can see yourself the way God sees you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His identity. Nothing greater than that. Nothing greater than that. And here's the reality for every single one of us in this room. If you don't know Jesus like that, you don't know Jesus. And you're like, Dwayne, hold on a second. Like, I became a believer when I was six years old or five years ago. I became a believer. When you became a believer, there's one thing that's very obvious that happens. You love Jesus more than anything else. I'm not getting into like how often do you pray and how often do you study his word. How, those are byproducts of loving Jesus. We love Jesus so much that we want to pray. We love Jesus so much that we want to read the word that testifies and proclaims to who he is. I'm not talking about the disciplines of Christianity. I'm talking about Jesus. If you don't treasure, adore, love Jesus more than your spouse, more than your kids, more than your work, your career, more than your friends, more than whatever it is, your sin. If you don't love Jesus more than your sin, you don't love Jesus. And so I want to seize this opportunity right now to tell you that needs to be surrendered You need to come to Jesus and you need to tell him, Jesus, I love other things more than you. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I want to know you. I want to live for you. I want to honor you. I want to worship you. I want to treasure you. I want to adore you because all these other things are not working out for me. And if that's in you, if that's you... If you've been a believer, if you're a member of this church and this is you, and you're embarrassed, let me please be the first one to invite you to say there's nobody in this room who would look at you and mock you or make fun of you or think down on you because you've been faking it this long. Whether you think you've been faking it or not. I mean, I used to, when I was in the South, because I believe there were a lot of people in the church who were not believers in the South. One of the things I used to literally finish every sermon with was, I'm waiting for the person who comes up to me and says, I have been saved from church that I've been doing for the last 40 years. I've never missed a Sunday school. I've never missed an attendance to worship. I've never missed a prayer gathering. I've never missed all those things. But I was putting my trust in those things rather than Jesus. 
And if that's you in this morning where you're constantly spinning your wheels being a part of a church and yet you're still frustrated and you're still not quite understanding why Jesus isn't meeting you and why he's not working in your life and why you're not getting better and why you're not growing in yourself. Like if, if that is you in this room, then I just want to invite you to consider, do you know Jesus? Is he your greatest treasure? And if he's not, come to know him. Come to know him. And if you're in this room and you're like, no, I was invited and I didn't realize this was a church, but I'm here. And I'm hearing Jesus for the first time. And I'm realizing that, yeah, my life is a mess. My life is not good. There's things that I'm trying and I'm spinning my wheels, but it's not working out. And I need, I need forgiveness. I need Jesus. I need hope. I need that. And I invite you to come to know Jesus as well. I invite you to come to know him. Let's pray. God, I believe that you are in the hearts of people right now working I think there are people in this room right now who have thought that they've known you, but haven't. And God, I'm not trying to um, create doubt in people's minds. But God, I want them to know Jesus if they don't. And so Father, right now, if there's people in this room who you know don't know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And that you would grant them the faith to believe in Jesus and right now to place all trust and hope in him. And that when they leave this room, they leave as a new believer as a Christian, with Jesus as their greatest treasure. And God, I also pray for those in this room that are believers, that have been invited to play every single day to share this good news with those who are all around us and to seize the opportunity God, would you embolden our hearts and minds, strengthen our efforts, give us what we need to share with those around us your good news and your message. And we're asking that beforehand, as we go into our jobs and careers as we go into our neighborhoods wherever we go that there are people there who you want to save would you draw them and call them out as we share the gospel with them and grant them the faith to believe in you and to turn to you and to believe and trust in you 
And I pray that for each one of us in this room, that as we do this on a day in and day out basis, I pray that our joy increases. I pray that regardless of our circumstances in life, whether we're struggling financially, we're struggling relationally, we're struggling with our jobs, careers, whatever it is, we are the happiest people on this earth because we are seeing the gospel spread to those around us. We are seeing people transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. May we experience that. And in return, worship you with all that we are. For you get the credit for all of it so that we would not boast. We love you, Lord. And it's in your beautiful son's name we pray. Amen. As we close out this service and we come to the table of communion, communion is an opportunity for us to be invited as a family. As a family to not partake as in something that we are doing as an effort, but something in which we receive to be encouraged and edified. This is, this, this is a feast, if you will, for your soul of where our hope and trust can be placed in knowing that Jesus Christ broke his body and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, for the removal of your sins, to remove your shame, to remove your guilt, to remove your punishment, to remove your sin, to remove all of that. That's what Jesus did. And we're feasting on this for our souls in order for our strength or for our faith to be strengthened. And not only that, but as Josh shared last week, this is an opportunity for us to look ahead. That this feast is just a foreshadowing of the great feast that we're going to have with Jesus where the entire history of believers are going to be sitting around a table. It's a big table, but we're going to be sitting around a table with Jesus partaking of a meal. And one of the things I love about Jesus is that at his last supper, he literally said, I will not partake of this feast until that last feast with all of the saints in one room. There's literally a groaning for like in Jesus where he can't wait to partake of this meal with you together. And so for us, we take it in anguish, in angst, in pursuit of we cannot wait for that day in which we get around that table and we celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, for breaking your body and shedding your blood so that we can have a seat at this table. We thank you. And so as we go ahead and stand and as we contemplate this receiving of this meal, let's just think about that and let's worship in that moment. And we're going to follow suit with what we did last week. And so if you would, go up, get the bread, get the juice, come back to your spots, and then we will partake together receiving this beautiful, encouraging ritual, if you will, communion. So let's go ahead and stand. And let's go ahead and partake of communion. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at